1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C, a host of the channel. Our guest today is Professor Scott Levi, who has agreed to talk with us about his new book, *The Bukharan Crisis: A Connected History of Eighteenth-Century Central Asia*, published in 2020 by University of Pittsburgh Press. Scott Levi is a specialist of the social and economic history of early modern Central Asia. In addition to several journal articles, Book chapters and other publications. He is the author of the book we'll be discussing today, The Bukharan Crisis, as well as The Rise and Fall of Kokan, 1709 to 1876, Central Asia in the Global Age, Caravans, Indian Merchants on the Silk Road, The Indian Diaspora in Central Asia and its Trade, 1550 to 1900. And he is also the co editor with Ron Sella of Islamic Central Asia, an anthology of sources published by Indiana University Press in 2010. He currently serves as the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Asian Commercial History, and he is the recipient of the 2011 Ohio State University Alumni Award for Distinguished Teaching, and he currently serves as the head of uh, the Department of History at Ohio State University. So, Scott, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here,
1: and I'm really excited to kind of jump into our conversation today. So I have to start with the first question: um, Why did you s- decide to write a book about the Bukharan crisis? Um, and if you could tell us a little bit about your specific interest in this project and how you how this fits into your broader study of Central.
0: Sure. I'm happy to answer that question, Nick.
1: So the, the larger question
0: really grew out of my first book project, which was uh, you know, originally, of course, my, my dissertation work back when I was in grad school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And that was that study of the, the Indian merchant diaspora in Central Asia that came out uh, almost 20 years ago now. So that study examined the emergence, the life, and then the collapse of that diaspora over about a three and a half uh, century period of time, over about 350 years. And working on that project, um, I became really interested in the Fargana Valley in particular. Uh, As I I observed, and it was only really as I was getting toward the end of my research on that project that I, I realized that I was not able to find any historical sources that could place Indian merchants in the Fargana Valley in the 16th or 17th centuries. Mm-hmm. But by the time we get to the turn of the 19th century, they start appearing in sources. And then by the, the, the time of the Russian colonial era, they're ubiquitous in the valley, as ubiquitous as they had been everywhere else. And so that really focused my attention on, on the Fargana Valley and specifically to the Khanate of Khokhand. So while I was working on on Hokan, you know, this state that emerged in the first half of the 18th century, you know, uh, it's it's, it's dated to 1709, uh, I wanted to start addressing the context of that emergence, what was going on in Central Asia during that first half of the 18th century. And so that uh, led me to... Pepper my discussion uh, in in, in the Hocan book with a a few short discussions about the the crisis of the Bukharan Khanate. Um, Those discussions gradually grew longer, and then they they, they transformed into a chapter. And then as I got a little bit deeper, it transformed into several chapters. And then what I had envisioned would, would be one really large book with two substantial parts, actually separated off into two completely different book projects. And so they kind of came out, you might say, in reverse order. The Hokan study came out first, uh, although the Bukharan crisis book is in some ways a, a prequel to the hokan book. Um, it's really a study of that, that 18th century Bukharan crisis out of which the Khanate of Hokand
1: emerged. Yeah. And and I'm curious because you're talking a little bit about your, you know, in some ways these two projects are kind of linked. Um, but I'm curious about uh, if you could tell us a little bit about maybe th- the difference in intention between your book on Kohan and, and this new book, because what I noticed when I was reading um, this book is that there seems to be a very intentional um, argument for a paradigm shift in Central Asian studies that you're trying to put forward. And I think in some ways we can trace this back uh, to kind of some ideas, um Proposed by Edward Said, Um, and and specifically in the conclusion of your book, you quote uh, the Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Adichie, who says that um, the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete; that they make one story become the only story. And what I'm curious is, um, what is the stereotype about Central Asia that you're trying to confront? And did you did you is this an idea that you first developed when you are writing the Kokan book or is it something new that you're bringing out in the Bukharan crisis? So uh,
0: first, let me just say, I love that lecture. that uh, That's a, um, a TED Global lecture that uh, Adichie delivered some years ago. And uh, uh, I'm not the only historian who loves that lecture. Uh, just a few months after I finished drafting the, um, uh, the Bukharan crisis conclusion where I put that, that quote, the history department at Ohio State had um, uh, uh, Carol Anderson from Emory University gave us a talk. She gave a talk for the, for the department. And she actually used that exact same lecture, that exact same quote to illustrate a point that she's making. Of course, she's talking about African-American history. But here, it's again, it's an excellent way to illustrate the importance of historical nuance. So one of the – that that connects directly to what I'm trying to achieve with, I would say, both of these books, which is to move beyond the stereotypes of uh, – I'd say it's kind of a dual stereotype of isolation and decline. Um, we've um, – uh, we're, here, when I'm talking about decline, I'm not, I'm not talking about the decline of the Bukharan state. That's that's something that's very specific, that's verifiable. I address that in, in, in considerable detail. Uh, I'm talking about the idea that the entire region in the early modern era shifted from being a hub of global connectivity, which it had been for presumably more than a century and a half, uh, to um, uh, this early modern period where it's uh, conceived of as the, the, the back of beyond. Um, So that's I would say if there's if there's a stereotype that I'm really trying to to combat, that's it. Um, You know, and as we think about early modern world history, you know, clearly the early modern era witnesses a dramatic increase in maritime movement, uh, especially in the Atlantic and Indian Ocean arenas. That's also well established. But the question that I'm bringing to this work is, you know, what does what do those developments tell us about Central Asia? Uh, Does the region, does Central Asia as a region suffer as a result? Is it pushed to the margins uh, or is it drawn more deeply into global economic patterns? The historiography, at least in the West, has for a very long time been biased toward the former, uh, but the preponderance of evidence that I'm able to present in the and crisis book, and here I'm drawing on other scholarly works, right? This is primarily a synthetic analysis. It's primarily historiographical, uh, but I'm pulling this work together and demonstrating that that evidence really tilts decidedly toward the latter. Um, the, that being that the, um, the region is in fact drawn more deeply into global economic patterns, And I argue then that the implications of this revelation for Central Asian history as a field of study are really very important. So I also argue, though, um, that we have to realize that globalization as a phenomenon is neither inherently good nor bad. Uh, Some participants in the process emerge as kind of the so-called winners, right? Their their economies boom and they're able to uh, uh, advance politically and and militarily, while others are clearly the losers. Um, But we can at least ask how globalizing trends shape early modern Central Asian history. And that is really no small question.
1: Well, yeah. And and within this discussion, I kind of want to push it a little bit more because in, in, the, in the book, you talk about how this narrative of isolation or this narrative of kind of Central Asia and its economy being disconnected in this early modern period, how this is actually linked with um, the history of the region and, and the way in which, uh, you know, Russian colonialism happened and, and kind of what, what kind of schools of thought, uh, you know, the, the early Russian Orientalists uh, were operating within. And I'm curious, like, how does this narrative emerge? Um, how can we explain, like, why it's still still kind of prevalent or why it still impacts the way we do um, historical research in Central Asia? And whether or not this has anything to do with another term, uh, the Silk Road, which, um, you know, if you, if you look at a Barnes & Noble, um, you know, book display... And and you go to the Central Asian section, you're you're found to you're you're bound to find at least one instance, if not several instances, of that word. And I know you talk about this in the book, so I was curious if you could share a little bit about that term, what it implies, and kind of how you would maybe reframe um, what we would call the Silk Road. Sure, sure. Uh, so I think the narrative, um, this narrative of
0: Central Asian isolation and decline emerges from two uh, two separate but somewhat overlapping modes of thought. Uh, and one is scholarship on the Silk Road. Uh, so I trace that in, uh, in in chapter two, I trace the, the concept of the Silk Road, uh, I mean, as others have as well. Daniel Waugh has written on this, Tamara Chin, uh, Valerie Hansen has done some really wonderful work there. Uh, but tracing the concept of the Silk Road from its origins, it's when it was coined first in, in 1877, uh, through... Um, It was von Richthofen, was the um, historical geographer who first coined it. Uh, And he used it in a very particular way, a very specific way. And then over time, it becomes rather simplified. Uh, By the time we're moving into Sven Hayden's work on the Silk Road, um, the nuance that... Von Richthofen applied is is starting. It's it's starting to diminish, and we start to see it really transform into something more akin to an empty trope, where we get this uh, what I call the the interstate the North American interstate highway model of what the Silk Road is, right? And if you you know Google Maps of the Silk Road, you're going to find this lat- latitudinal route connecting China with the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, very very simplified and. Um, what it's left is a concept that is really very poorly defined, which makes it very malleable and moldable. Um, there's some good scholarship that we can point to. Valerie Hansen, again, is, is one. Jim Millward has done some very good work focusing on the Silk Road, what it is, and, and trying to really add um, uh, meaning to the to the the concept. Um but we've seen it used to support a whole range of theories on Central Asia. And that's something else that I really try and bring out in this book is how it often is, is used, it's misused to support theories that are often wrong and not infrequently in conflict with each other, just because we have a really poor understanding of what it is that we're talking about. So that's one side. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. The other side is the Orientalist era scholarship, which... Um, uh, especially as it applies to the notion of Islamic, the decline of Islamic societies. That's a notion that emerged in the 19th century, largely in the context of the um, age of European imperialism uh, and explaining the European needs colonization of Islamic lands. It's been applied in multiple fields. Um, Certainly, I studied it when I was a graduate student uh, in in, uh, the context of Indian history, uh, you know, the decline of the Mughal Empire and uh, the rise of the British Raj. Uh, For this book, I actually looked quite closely at the Ottoman example, where I think there's a really rich body of scholarship that challenges that Orientalist trope and then moves beyond it. And so I do a kind of analysis of uh, how scholars have rethought this concept of Ottoman decline, uh, which I I think I I referenced my colleague, Jane Hathaway, who observes that any critical reader is going to have to date from uh, the end of Suleiman the Magnificent's reign to world war one, right? So three and a half centuries of decline, uh, which makes it, you know, essentially again, a meaningless trope. Uh, But I found that as I'm, became more um, familiar with scholarship and uh, the historiography of Central Asian history over the years, that that legacy has still remained really very strong in in the Central Asia field. And so I wanted to really get our field to move into that discussion, uh, to address it directly, and then hopefully to move beyond it so we can start to think about things in a more nuanced and meaningful way. What I think is it's it's these two together, the collapse of the Silk Road or presumed collapse of the Silk Road, or however you wish to frame it, um, leading to Central Asian isolation. If we're not, forget about, you know, we don't have to frame Central Asia's commercial connectivity as as the Silk Road, however you wish to frame it. The idea that when Europeans become more prevalent in the Indian Ocean, that Central Asia's connections to the outside world become diminished, the region becomes more isolated, and then combined. With combining that with this presumed period of Islamic decadence, which we find in that Orientalist literature, that led to Central Asia's civilizational decline. The end result is this persistent and highly deleterious framework for understanding early modern Central Asia. And I think that framework has actually kept a lot of people from investigating it. So it's uh, it, it, that's one of the reasons why it's become so persistent. Uh, you know, who, who wants to look at a period of history that is supposed to be defined by decline, isolation and, um, uh, you know, a lack of cultural productivity, et cetera, et cetera. When one looks more closely, as I did with Hokand, one finds all sorts of really wonderful questions that are waiting there to be to be asked. So I'm advocating in, in really in both of these books uh, for exploring early modern connectivities, um, to explore the ways that Central Asian peoples work to link their societies to the neighboring civilizations on the Eurasian periphery. Um, noting, let me, let me just say that in, in this conceptualization, uh, China, India, Russia, Um, the Middle East, are peripheral. uh, Central Asia is at the core of the question. Um, It's, you know, examining that, examining the ways those connections shape the region's history. Um, You know, of course, it's not the only method that one should use in one's work. Uh, Certainly, I advocate and I I train my, my, my graduate students as well to engage in a wide variety of different sorts of historical methods. But I do argue that this one is a valuable one. Uh, and I think that it is especially important for early modern Central Asian history, primarily because it's one that has been insufficiently applied to the region. So I think there's a lot that we can really we can draw from it. Now, you you also asked me to um, uh, give to, to address a little more in a little more detail the question of um, what all of this has to do with the Silk Road. You know, should we should we even use the be using the term uh, Silk Road and um, I think uh, there are some scholars who uh, have very good reason, actually, for advocating to just completely get rid of it, to jettison it from our scholarly vocabulary. Uh, they identify it as a useless uh, neologism. Um, and, you know, that's 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 legitimate. The way it is often used or, or, or misused, as I say, um, uh, certainly it does uh, at least as much damage as it does good. Uh, at the same time, I think scholars develop tropes for a purpose. Um, the problem isn 't necessarily the trope it 's what we it 's when we shed the nuance that 's supposed to be associated with that with that way of thinking So if the Silk Road is used as shorthand for all Central Asian commerce. But in essence, what we're really only talking about is the movement of merchandise across latitudinal trade routes that connect China with Europe. What we've really done is imposed a Sinocentric distortion of Central Asia's commercial history. If that's all that we're looking at when we're thinking of Central Asia's commercial history, we're only looking at one small component of the region's uh, uh, commercial economy. Uh, And so we're really doing the region's history a disservice. So I think that's a very shallow understanding of what constituted the, the so-called Silk Road trade. Um, Central Asia's commercial arena was never predominantly about moving Chinese merchandise to Europe. It was always considerably more complex. We have, and, and we, must, we have to take that issue of Central Asia's commercial history seriously in order to understand how the region was connected to its neighbors and how those connections change over time. So I think if whether we use the Silk Road as a concept or if we use something else, um, it's important to appreciate the complexities of the concept, uh, even among good scholars. If they build their arguments on a poor foundation, it's going to lead to poor and poor, you know, flawed arguments. Um so ultimately, I think I don't necessarily advocate for jettisoning the use of the term. Certainly, it's becoming more popular over time, not less popular. Uh, even if we all, as a, as, as, a, as a profession, as a field, decided that we would never use it again, uh, it, it's not going to stop it from, from, from appearing. I do think that it is a convenient way to introduce Central Asian connectivity, but I also advocate vehemently for using it in a historically accurate way. And the onus is on us those of us who are working in Central Asian history, really to do so. And um, I'll point to Jim Millward's book, uh, Silk Road, The Silk Road, a very short introduction, came out with Oxford some years ago. Uh, It's a very useful uh, book. It's very easy to assign. Millward does a very good job of appreciating the nuance. Uh, It's affordable. Like I said, it's great, easy to assign in an undergrad classroom. So yeah, I mean that's that's my position. It's um not that I don't see the flaws and certainly I point out many of them in uh in, in chapter two. Um but I, I think realistically we our, our best uh approach moving forward is to try and make certain that when we're talking about the Silk Road, our our the the audience, the people who are paying attention to our, our, our work, that they get a sense of just how complex Central Asia's connectivity really was in a historical context.
1: Wonderful. And now, um, kind of building on that, I want to actually turn our attention towards the Bukharan crisis, because I think, you know, you have a really interesting case here um, that allows you to demonstrate some of the the bigger concepts you've been talking about. Um, and. I think for for all of our listeners, I think it would be helpful if we could first, if you could first, um, kind of describe um, this period, which you're calling early modern, you know, early modern Central Asia. What what does Central Asia look like at this time? What's kind of the the political and and social arrangement at the time? Um, and and how, how does the Bukharan state come to be? And and kind of. I guess, moving towards it, like, what is the Bukharan crisis? Um, both both, in, I guess, kind of from a from a scholarly kind of consensus, um, you mentioned that you're not disputing the fact that, that the Bukharan state faced a crisis. Um, but also, I guess I, I kind of want to start moving towards, how does your account actually differ from, from what's been kind of written in the field in the past? Um, so yeah, just to, to start again, um, what does Central Asia look like during this period?
0: Sure. So politically speaking, um, uh, you know, there are, there are a couple different ways um, that historians have f- uh, framed Central Asian history um, uh, in terms of periodization in this period. Um, and here we're talking from 1500 roughly up to the Russian colonial period. Uh, oftentimes, this is referred to as the Uzbek period of Central Asian history. Uh, and it's referred to as the, the Uzbek period. I mean, that's one is that is, um, so we're discussing the, the, the regions of, um, uh, uh, that become the Bukhara and Khanate, um, historical Mawar al-Nahar or Transoxania, uh, as, as well as the Fargana Valley and Khwarezm. All right so this this is the geographically this is the region that we're looking at south of the ROC uh north of Persia north of Afghanistan and then west of the Tian Shan mountains and west of Xinjiang that's the that's the zone and that's that distinguishes this particular region from the Kazakh areas to the north um so this is referred to as the Uzbek period oftentimes uh and there's nothing objectionable about that it's um it's a way to recognize that the Uzbek tribes became the dominant political force in the region. Uh, it took a few I should back up a little bit and say, um, after they, uh, occupied the region, or as um, the Timurids, the final Timurid ruler to reign in the region, uh, Zahiruddin Mohammed Babur, who was the founder of the Mughal Empire in India, he would say that they invaded and um, uh, evicted the Timurids from the region. Uh, so here you've got the, the Uzbek tribes, several hundred thousand Uzbeks, uh, under the leadership of Genghisids, right? And the Timurids, of course, were not Chingizids. So this is also known as the Chingizid Restoration. Um, the Uzbeks were the primary political power. Uh, there were other Turks, and of course, large populations of Tajiks in the region as well. Uh, but in this period, it was the, the the Uzbek tribes. Um, they were the, the the dominant power politically. So, like I said, there's really nothing objectionable about. Referring to this, uh, you know, 1500 to uh, into the 19th century as the Uzbek period of Central Asian history, personally, I have a preference for referring to it as early modern. And my reason for that is because it highlights the ways that larger Eurasian or even global historical processes are also shaping things that are happening in Central Asia. Uh, Central Asia was very much a part of the outside world in this period. That's something that has been a defining feature of my work, my entire professional career. And so naturally I kind of favor the early modern. Like I said, there's it, it's not that there's um, any specific objection to referring to it as the Uzbek period. That's my preference. So when we're talking about the states, we're talking really about, for, and, and for the Bukharan Khanate, we're talking about two different dynasties. First is the Shabanids, uh, and that is a state that is... Um, named after, uh, uh, arguably, Mohammed Shibani Khan, who was the, the leader of the, uh, uh, the, the Uzbek forces that jettisoned, that, that, that evicted Babur from the region, sent him from Samarkand down to Kabul, where eventually he, he gave rise to the, the Mughal Empire uh, after defeating the Lodis in, in North India. Uh, So you've got the Shibanids under the leadership of Muhammad Shibani Khan. Uh, During that period in time, you have a different sort of a political system that's in place. Um, It's called the Appanage system, where there is a principal member of the family uh, who really serves as the greatest among equals. Right, So there's a royal family, and then leadership, the territory of the state, is shared among that royal family. So one of these locations, one of these cities becomes the the principal. And, and, and for the and Khanid, it becomes Bukhara, whereas for the Timurids, it had, of course, been Samarkand, uh, or alternatively, Samarkand and Herat. But for, for uh, the Shibanids, uh, it was Bukhara. Uh, so that's why we call it, the outsiders called it the Boharan Hanate. Uh, after At the end of the 16th century, uh, there was a transition from the, from the Shibanid dynastic family to another family. Uh, and the, this dynasty is known alternatively as the Tokay Timurids um, or the uh, Janids uh, after Jani Khan, who was one of the, the, the founders of, of that dynasty. Uh, and also the third name is the Astrakhanids because they came to Bukhara from um, the Astrakhan Khanate. Uh, after, in, in the wake, I should say, of the, the Russian conquest of the um, uh, Hanids of Kazan and Astrakhan. So you have these two different dynasties in form, in uh, uh, all of the meaningful defining features of the state. There's more, much more. Uh, in common than there is difference between the two, uh, and Bukhara remained the principal city during the the um, entire period from 1500 to 1747. You know the the almost 250 years where where this state really was was in place. Uh, so um, that's where we get the Bukhara and Khanate. That's where it comes from. The last 50 years or so. From the um, turn of the 18th century to 1747, there is a clearly visible decline in the strength of that state. Uh, uh, there is a, I, there, with the appendage system, there is always tensions uh, pulling at the, the the fabric of leadership. There's the principle, but the principle, as I said, is, the Khan, is, as I said, is um, greatest among equals. So others in the royal family are vying for more authority for them and for their dependents. There's always kind of a tension among the royal family. By the time we move into the 18th century, that tension has become pretty severe. And you get um, not just uh, tension, but a real visible decentralization in the state. So that, uh, you know, the most restrictive concept of the Baharan crisis places it in the first half of the 18th century. Other historians over the years have dated this uh, crisis to the entire early modern period. Again, I, 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 clearly, I think that's a, that's, that's a, a pretty substantial error, um, others have said, "Well, no, it's really an 18th century crisis." But uh, m- my argument uh, that I that I develop over the course of this book is um, it's a the, the crisis is most severe during the first half of the 18th century, but it really is noticeable actually from the 1640s moving forward. It's a crisis of a little more than a century, uh, but it becomes most visible as we are um, uh, moving into the 18th century. So um typical explanations for the crisis uh if we go back to the 1990s uh we'd, actually we don't even have to go back that far but uh the the pat argument that uh historians put forth was that it was very simple Europeans arrived in the Indian Ocean and usurped transcontinental trade um sending an end to the the silk road um uh and so central asia became isolated from the outside world that notion remains popular in some quarters. It's been dismissed in others. Um, generally, the idea that the set, that the Silk Road itself fell into decline, I think, has been uh, uh, pretty well set aside. But the idea that the uh, region fell into isolation, that remains in place until now. Uh, that, I think, is, you know, if there's uh, one central or one of several central arguments that I'm putting forward here. uh, It's that the region was never in any way meaningfully isolated. Uh, It was always engaged with the outside world. Um, I think this idea of economic isolation, I I think it's a product of um, uh, kind of two dimensional thinking combined with a failure to seriously interrogate commercial history. Um, You know, and I get it researching, trade flows is a grind. It's not a lot of fun to look at a bunch of historical sources that talk about the movement of merchandise from one place to another or um, histories of family businesses and that kind of thing. But if we're going to use economics as a building block for other sorts of arguments, whether those arguments are political or cultural or literary, if we're going to use it as a building block, we have to take it seriously. And so I try and do that in this book. Um, that's one way that my my book uh really differs from from earlier work in this area. Um uh, you know, nobody else has actually gone out there. We I mean we still this is a, a project for my um Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Asian Commercial History. It's a big collaborative project. But there has yet to be an analysis of how Central Asia's commercial economy in the 17th and 18th centuries compares to the 14th and 15th centuries. These theories that we have been using as building blocks for our arguments have been built on impression and on received wisdom, not on evidence. Chapter three in in the Baharan Crisis book presents the state of the field in terms of that evidence. Now, there's a lot more work to do, but clearly we have already made a lot of progress and we can clearly demonstrate that the region, even at the heart of the crisis in the 18th century, was anything but isolated.
1: Yeah, and I think we'll get a little bit more into the evidence in a minute, but kind of one thing I wanted to maybe ask you a lot, ask you further about was um, coming back to this discussion we had earlier about isolation and decline, because what I kind of sensed from the book was that you're, you're arguing that we, we should define what is in decline. It seems to me that you're, you're saying, yes, the state, um, by, by most objective measures, was experiencing some kind of decline or weakening or decentralization, as you put it, mm-hmm. but that these, but that the traders themselves who are involved in this commercial um, trade, you know, across Eurasia um, are not the state. So we, 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 we kind of need to, um, I guess, better define our our uh, categories of analysis. Is, is that, is, is, is that a fair, um, I don't know, synthesis of, of, one of your main points, or did um, you is. take that further? Okay, it is. I think it's. I think it's a, 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 an error to
0: take an analysis of the Bukharan state and then apply that Bukharan state, which is in a and, and the state and those people who are dependent upon that state, uh, who are you know heavily involved in writing the histories that we use for the region right? So there's a, you know, there are many different sources that one can work with that illustrate in real high definition, many of the problems and complaints that people who were affiliated with the Bukharan state were suffering in that period. So we can look at that body of literature. And that tells us something really very important about something. My point is, it tells us I think it tells us an awful lot about the problems of the Bihararan state and the ways that authors and um, our chroniclers and our rulers were trying to struggle with those with those problems, but it does not we cannot take that and uh, then apply it to the entire region as a whole so that's also something that I try and build out in the Hokand book where if you know one looks at the the political situation, economic situation of of the region from the vantage point of the great Ark of Bukhara in the year 1740, one's going to have a really dismal view of, of how that region looks. But the the capital of the Khanate of Khokhand was also established in 1740. And if you're standing over in the Fargana Valley... Um, Things look very, very different, and that's the kind of nuance that I'm arguing for. Um, it's not right. It's it, it's not accurate to apply those conclusions to the region as a whole. We need this 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 nuance.
1: And so, in in, I guess to kind of counter this this uh, typical argument about just um, all sorts of decline. You instead are trying to raise a number, a series of interrelated factors that actually did contribute to the Bukharan crisis. I'd like to talk about each of these in detail. And especially, um, I think later on, we'll get to, um, we'll talk a little bit about the evidence um, surrounding uh, kind of the global silver trade and, and and commerce in general and the ways that traders are responding to these crises. Okay. Um, but first, I, w- I want to come back and talk about um kind of major political events happening um in India in 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 Persia yeah. and how these are impacting uh, what's happening in Central Asia because you know you talk about the fall of the Safavid dynasty i know around the, this early modern period you see the rise of the Durranis in Afghanistan you see the collapse of the Mughal dynasty how do we all of these events uh impact what's happening in Bukhara or in Central Asia more broadly
0: Right. So throughout the book, um, uh, I make a concerted effort to link Central Asian history to advances that have been made in a, a number of different historical fields. So I've I mentioned Ottoman history, um, I uh, look pretty deeply into some questions in Chinese history, Indian Ocean history, Russian history, and I even I, I did some reading in European and American history as well, uh, engaged pretty deeply uh, the work of my colleague, Jeffrey Parker, who has written extensively on both the early modern military revolution, and also the global clim- climate crisis of the 17th century. Um, in trying to wrap my brain around questions of environmental history, I also worked Uh, through uh, Bill Cronin's work on American environmental history uh, where I'm I'm looking at the the Kazakh steppe and I'm seeing um, echoes of the American West and so there are some real interesting works that are being written in a lot of different fields and um, you know Uh, trying to apply some of what I've learned to to Central Asian history has been, uh, I mean, it's been a really great exercise. I wanted to engage some of the most important works that are out there and illustrate some of the ways that Central Asia can fit into those discussions and debates and how those help us think about something that is really as complicated as the Bukharan crisis. Uh, So let me also say, I have to tell you, it really was a lot of fun. Uh, I had a great time reading so many of these classics, and then thinking about how I can bring those into Central Asian history. Um, the um, some of the questions, some of the ways that these frameworks, these new ways of thinking, these uh, you know achievements in, in, in different bodies of historical literature, shaped the ways that I thought. One is, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I guess the the thing to do is really to talk about this. Um, braided sort of explanation that I generated that were in in an effort to try and explain what the causal factors were for the the Baharan crisis. So uh, in, in trying to wrap my brain around this, um, you know, as I say, I, I, I don't think that the Baharan crisis was uh, a factor of any one single uh, uh, precipitating, you know, one, one single causal factor. I think that it was multiple causal factors that converged that ultimately sent that uh, that state into um, decentral- a, a decentralizing pattern that became a pretty severe crisis, and then ultimately it collapsed. Uh, one of these problems is, uh, as I mentioned, just the, the sheer nature of the, the appendage system, um, highly decentralized political system, uh, and it was inherently decentralized. And whereas some states in the um, uh, Islamic world, so the Mughal Empire, for example, the Ottoman Empire, um, the Safavids, uh, managed to become more monarchical. Uh, certainly the, the European authors at the time I would call them absolute monarchies and that's you know very much an exaggeration uh but they're you know monarchical in 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 by nature central asia that never happened um there were efforts uh but those efforts failed uh and so you've got inherently a decentralized state structure secondarily i think we look at the um uh the collapse of um uh so as we as we're going through a our list of 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 causation um Uh, The secondary factor would be the Mughal collapse following 1707, uh, following the death of Aurangzeb, uh, and a couple of decades of uh, disruptions there. Um, And certainly, I mean, the Safavid collapse uh, and disruptions during Nadir Shah's reign in the second quarter of the 18th century in Safavid Iran is another factor. Honestly... I'm hesitant to put too much weight on that. Um, I think that puts an extraordinary amount of weight on uh, the value of India's central, uh, commercial relationship with Central Asia. Um, you know, the collapse of the Mughal Empire would have made travel more difficult. Here's the, the presumption, travel more difficult between India and Central Asia. And so it would have um, made it more difficult for Central Asia to access the Indian Ocean commercial arena. Uh you know, I'm personally inclined to think that India's uh, commercial relationship with Central Asia was historically important. Um, I don't know anybody who's worked as many years on that question as, as I have. Uh, you know, I've got a couple of books that I've written on the subject, but I also think that Central Asia's trade was a transit trade. Um, India's uh, textiles moving through Central Asian markets were certainly very important, but. That's only one facet. That's one aspect of Central Asia's commercial economy. And even as that is potentially disruptive, uh, Central Asia's commercial relationship with Russia was growing at the exact same time. Um, even during the heart of the crisis, you've got large numbers of Baharan merchants who are venturing northward into Russian territory. Um, and so you've got uh, where, to be sure, I mean, and in, in, this is another important point. In the heart of that crisis, these merchant groups that were extending into Russia were putting in place frameworks that were actually going to be much, much more important as Central Asia's commercial relations with Russia would continue to grow for decades after. Right. I mean, you know. the, well, we all know the the, the history, but as um, as we move through the 18th century, these relationships, be- northward relationships became even more important. So, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to think that the Mughal collapse was a contributing factor. It wasn't really a driving force in terms of causing any kind of um, uh, long-lasting, sustained uh, disruption to the Baharan state
1: but it, but it does in a way um end up leading to a a, a shift in in i guess trade routes um, trading connections um northward as you say so so would you say that there's more trade going on um, be- between bukharan merchants and chinese merchants or bukharan merchants and russian merchants in siberia or um I guess I'm kind of interested in that because what you're describing is a much more complicated picture of how um, many different groups are changing at this time.
0: Yeah, I describe this as a multi vectored commercial network. That's um, uh, you, where you've got groups from outside, groups from, uh, from India, groups from. Um, from Russia that are that are trying to, uh, to to reach into Central Asia, and then you also have Central Asian commercial groups that are that are extending outward in multiple directions. Uh, so yeah, I mean that's the that's the, the the image that I'm presenting. I do see Central Asia's commercial uh, relationships growing most importantly over the course of the 18th century, initially northward into Siberia. And here I draw largely on Erica Monaghan's really excellent work on this subject. And then also eastward. um, But that begins principally after the Qing conquest of Xinjiang. You've got, uh, you know, long sustained commercial relationships eastward into um, Kashgar and other other, major, uh, or the, the, the oasis towns in, um, Alta Shaher uh, the Qing, of course, called it Xinjiang. The, the, uh, Uyghur populations, uh, only later, uh, adopted that name. Uh, and it was the name brought to them by the Qing. Um, but for, um, for the relationship between India and Central Asia, you know, it's, it's a very substantial relationship. It's bilateral as well. Indian merchandise going northward, Central Asian merchandise, especially horses going southward. Uh, the point that I want to make here in, in really kind of thinking about the, the dynamics of that southward trade is whereas in Safavid Persia, we can look at the real dislocation of the commercial economy for an extended period of time. With India, we don't have that evidence. That again is um, it's been pointed to in scholarly literature as uh, a disruption the the you know the, the the collapse of the Mughal Empire would have disrupted it, but I don't see any evidence that Indians in Bukharan markets ever received the same kind of persecution that they did in Safavid markets uh, they were never uh, pushed you know, removed forcibly from the markets. They were never exploited to the extent that the, the they were in Safavid markets. So I think that, you know, yeah, it, it, it would have been a muted effect
1: uh, in, in that way. So turning back to um, some of these other interrelated factors, um, you know, which you use to to kind of demonstrate the ways in which Central Asia was actually connected um, to the kind of broader, you know, I guess, surrounding regions and even um, of the globe, um, I want to talk about some other factors that you mentioned, uh, including climate, uh, gunpowder technology, um, the global silver trade, which you've hinted at um, when you were talking about the Qing, um, as well as uh, population transfers. So I guess if we can go through each of these, um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, what new insights into Uh, Climate change during this period in the 16th and 17th century and and 18th century might tell us about um, the, the decline of the Bukharan
0: state. Sure. Sure. So um, in recent years, uh, environmental history has really come into its own. And I have the benefit of working at Ohio State, where we have an extraordinarily strong field in environmental history. Uh, so um, it's not something that I was initially trained in, but it's something that I have been following more closely over the years, uh, and have been really eager to, to fold into my own work. Um, so in Central Asia... There are some climate scientists who have been doing a pretty substantial amount of work. Historians have uh, engaged some of that work. And here, I I think Nicola de Cosmo is probably the most famous of those. Uh, There's been some work done on um, the role of climate in the history of the Mongol Empire, for example. Uh, but I don't know of anybody who's been working on the role of climate in early modern Central Asia. Yulai Shamaloglu has a couple of, um, uh, of, of, of papers that he's written that kind of touch on it, but nobody who's really kind of focused in on that. And so I wanted to engage it really directly here and I'll, I'll explain why. So climate fluctuations are the backdrop of the human experience, um, you know, we live, we develop cultures uh, and, and, and agricultural economies in particular regions, and the ways that those societies take shape is uh, dependent upon the climate of uh, and, and the environment of a particular region. So there are always variations on a year-by-year basis. You know, some years are hotter, some years are colder, uh, and there are several factors that lead to those variations. But climate scientists are also able to identify long-term trends. One of these trends that climate scientists have been working on now for, uh, for actually for several decades, is um, what's called the Little Ice Age. Uh, It's um, the 17th century climate crisis. Uh, or the uh, global cl- climate crisis, as uh, uh, you know, Jeffrey Parker's work. Uh, another colleague, um, John Brook, has written on this extensively as well in his book titled uh, A Rough Journey, uh, which is a real macro historical analysis of um, uh, climate through, through human history. Um, so the 17th century crisis is a sustained period of cooling it's not just Central Asia. It's really, it's, it's a global phenomenon. And there are two key factors that are at play. One is an extended period of diminished solar radiation. So a less active sun. The sun has hot periods and cool periods. And that 17th century falls right in the heart of uh, a sustained um, cooler period uh if the sun can be cooler, let's just say less hot <laughs> and the second factor is uh a um a substantial increase in volcanic activity where we have volcanoes that are exploding and shooting thousands of tons of ash into the atmosphere where it veils the the planet from additional solar radiation. So what you get is this combination of a less active sun and a a veil around the globe, which is keeping that solar radiation that is making it to us from actually reaching the planet. So we are able to chart climate problems uh, already, a, a sustained period of cooling already beginning in the 1560s. And this continues up to the third decade of the 18th century. So we're talking about a very long 17th century. Now, looking at historical sources, we know that this uh, impacted large uh, agrarian zones very acutely, and certainly I think much more acutely than Central Asia. And the stories that we get there, and I I trace out some of these in Chapter 4, are um, uh, climate crisis leading to extreme severe cold in China, in Russia, in Europe. Uh, We see severe droughts. Um, Well, you see drought in some places, Places that are dependent upon rain for, for agriculture, if they suffer drought, of course, you're going to have failed crops. Other places that are not quite a, a, accustomed to that much water getting extreme amounts of water, uh, you get floods. Right. So this sustained cooling is impacting global climate patterns, global weather patterns. And that weather pattern fluctuation is leading to um, erratic uh, weather which which uh, you know, so as I said, droughts in some areas, flooding in other areas, the end result is the same. It's uh famine, war, and revolution. Uh, China suffered its coldest two years in a millennium in the four years that led up to the Ming collapse. Uh, Timothy Brook is a a, a great historian who's written on this. He writes about wild weather patterns, flooding, drought, famine. Um, Russia is another case. Um, 1601 to 1603, roughly 2 million people died across the empire due to to famine. Uh, In the Ottoman Empire, the 1590s, um, the climate crisis led to the Jalali Rebellion. Uh, Colleague Sam White writes about that. And in Central Asia, too. Um, we see shorter growing seasons, less revenue, and weakened states. Uh, that especially becomes noticeable as we move from the 1640s forward. So there are two teams of climate scientists who have been working on Central Asia's climate history. One is coming out of China, and they're focused more on Xinjiang. The other is coming out of Potsdam, and they're doing more work in um, the western side of the Shan. The uh, but what we find is that there, too, in Central Asia as well, the scientific evidence is indicating that there were climate crises and the textual evidence is um, uh, indicating that, in fact, uh, that's not um, uh, that's not in, in, in our imagination, that there are people who are actually experiencing those crises. Now, I have to tell you, when I when I started looking into the environment. Uh, environmental history. My hypothesis was that um, this crisis perhaps continued into the 18th century as we got into the 1720s and 30s. That maybe it was a, a climatic problem that uh, led to uh, led to this Bukharan crisis. Uh, The fact of the matter is that the scientific evidence suggests that that's not the case. Uh, It looks like by the time we move into the 1720s, the Little Ice Age in terms of Central Asia was over. Uh, And global, or I should say regional weather patterns had returned to normal. So these really extensive bitter, long, cold winters uh, with um, early freezes that would kill the crops in the fields, uh, late freezes that would kill the crops in the field, um, torrential rains that would then freeze, uh, and you would get the juice, the, um, the the layers of ice on the ground that would keep the, the horses from being able to get to the, uh, the grass, and so um, herds of horses would die those things started to come to an end as we move into the 1730s. Um, And so it looks to me, it looks as though, and and this is the argument that I'm advancing, that this uh, climate crisis is a defining feature of the decentralizing patterns that were in place as we're moving through the 17th century. More directly relevant to Central Asia as we move into the 18th century is the monetary crisis. And here we're talking about silver flows. So, as the global climate recovers as we move into the 18th century, uh, China, which had suffered dearly, suffered severely during the 17th century, China recovers. Russia also recovers. Uh, But the political situation in Bukhara becomes critical. And my question there is is, is why? What's, What's happening? So here I looked uh, to um, silver flows. I looked to work by some economic historians. Richard von Glan is one. Uh, and then Flynn and Geraldes are uh, a team who have done a fair amount of work on global silver flows. Uh, so I looked pretty closely at this and looked into uh, uh Central Asian economic history, especially the work of Elena Davidovich, uh, who analyzed the debasement of Biharan silver coinage um, in several periods, but including in uh, the 17th and 18th centuries. And she notes that silver, the debasement of these coins was, became pretty bad in the 17th century, um, but it became absolutely horrendous as we move into the 18th century. And that is indicative of the decline of the Biharan state. So what and we're why, finding? Oh, sorry. Why,
1: go ahead. Sorry. Why? Why specifically silver? Like why? The, why did you choose to focus on silver? And, and what significance does it have? For the,
0: so the percentage, the purity of the Bukharan coinage, which was principally a silver coinage, uh, the purity of that coinage is seen as a barometer of for the strength of the Bukharan state's economy. Uh, a a coin that is more silver. Indicates a a state economy that is healthier, a coin that has less silver content in it, more alloy, is uh, indicative of a weakening state economy. The state's not able to hold on to its silver, which weakens its position vis-a-vis international trade. It weakens its position for uh, for all sorts of purposes, being able to um, uh, pay its military, uh, and it goes on and on. Uh, So silver is an interesting – in a a state where the principal coinage is silver, silver is the – that's the the currency that you really want to focus your attention on to to, to analyze the strength of that that state's economy. But what I found was looking at uh, uh, especially at work on Qing economic history – As the Qing Empire moved out of the Little Ice Age, out of this climate crisis and into the 18th century, there was a dramatic increase in um, uh, the, uh, the population. The population of the empire actually nearly doubled over the first half of the 18th century, from about 160 million people to about 280 million people. So nearly a double uh van glan has done extensive research into qing market economics during this period uh, i mean he's done a lot of research a lot of periods but uh, his work on this period is very telling and he summarizes that the qing markets had what he calls a voracious appetite for silver and so the effect that we see on the movement of of, of Central Asian commercial relationships with silver is that that silver is going to have a much higher buying power in Chinese markets. If these markets are really thirsty for silver, they're going to have the ability to buy more. And so silver is moving out of Central Asian uh, markets, out of circulation in Central Asia, and off into China. And so the effect on Central Asia was um, this effluence of silver caused fiscal crisis. It caused that fiscal crisis that was already becoming. Pretty pronounced over the course of the second half of the 17th century. It caused it to become pretty critical as we move into the 18th century. And I actually, I mean, I charted, I, I used Davidovich's work and I actually put a chart together, and we see the um, uh, percentage of uh, silver in Bujaran coinage drop from 90% down to just very close to 10%. I mean, it's a really dramatic, uh, dramatic problem. So um, it's. Uh, the next question is um, uh, that I wanted to wrap my brain around as well is technological, right? Uh, so, as we move beyond silver we, and we look now at um, uh, military technologies, this is another important component of what I think is, is behind this Bukharan crisis uh, the gunpowder revolution. So, uh, you know, in uh, the middle of the 15th century, The Ottomans were able to take Constantinople with one of these massive cannons, right? The the, uh, absolutely enormous cannons. Um, Certainly gunpowder had been around and people had been, you know, militaries had been aware of it and using it for quite some time. By the time we're moving into the 16th century, gunpowder weaponry becomes very common. In European militaries, it's becoming increasingly common. um, You know, the difference between the 16th century, beginning of the 16th century, and the end of the 17th century in the Russian military is is night and day. Um, uh, Russia goes from primarily cavalry to primarily gunpowder weaponry uh, over the course of that century. Um, and so, I wanted to look and examine the role that, of, of the gunpowder revolution in Central Asia. Uh, what does this have to do with this you know slow and gradual erosion of the nomadic advantage um, that you know many historians have looked at why and I want to know why Central Asians resisted the gunpowder revolution and what role that had to have what played in in, in this Bukharan crisis so I, um, uh, I found that the military revolution was uh, much more than a European phenomenon. Um, Uh, Jeffrey Parker and Sanjay Subramanian had had, had written on that to to some extent. Um, I found a pretty great variation in how the military revolution unfolded across Europe, Africa and Eurasia. Um, This was actually uh, I was I was going to write a separate chapter on this subject alone, but I ended up taking it out. I took some of the conclusions from that chapter and and put it in. um, uh, in the, the uh, Boharan crisis book, but the chapter itself, the research for that, I, I published separately as uh, an entry in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia for Asian History. Uh, so that's available online. Um, but I, um, uh, I wanted to look more deeply into how local environment, local culture informed when societies would embrace it and how much. And here one finds some really interesting works, uh, in different contexts. Uh, Gabor um, Augustin, uh, works at, uh, Georgetown, uh, works in Ottoman, uh, military history and did a a, a fantastic job of analyzing the ways that the Ottomans were very much a part of the European and Mediterranean military arena, sometimes advancing technology, sometimes learning technologies and implementing those technologies, um, Rudy Matty, I think has done probably some of the best work on that this question in the in the, the Safavid Empire, Richard Eaton and Phil Wagner uh, writing on um, the implementation of gunpowder weaponry in the Deccan and finding that in fact when the Europeans showed up when the the Portuguese showed up on the coasts on the shores of India, uh, they found Indian gunsmiths who were able to make uh, muskets that were in some ways actually superior to what the European gunsmiths were making at that exact same time. Uh, so it's a really interesting question. Uh, and then I want to know, you know, why, why did Central Asians resist? Uh, and I find that environment here uh, actually plays a pretty important role as well. Central Asians had very good reasons for resisting and trying to retain an emphasis on cavalry. In that sense, the Central, Asians, um, Central Asian militaries were, had much more in common with Iran where you're dealing with a relatively sparsely populated zone with a lot of pasture, with wide open plains, um, not large dense populations of people who could serve as infantry, but highly trained cavalry who are exceptionally talented at archery. Uh, They've got great access to horses, small populations, So whereas larger agrarian societies grew stronger um, and relied more heavily on gunpowder weapons because they were easier, right, point and shoot, even if they were slow and clumsy, when combined with the much larger numbers of people who could serve as infantry, they gave those states an advantage. Whereas places like Central Asia didn't have the large numbers of population uh, or of of people, the large populations to be able to draw on to serve as infantry. The weaponry is also pretty expensive. Their advantage really was in fast moving, uh, the, the lightning fast cavalry moves. Um, and they, they pushed that advantage. And they were able, over the course of the 17th century, they were able to more or less maintain an equilibrium with their surrounding states. The tipping point in this technological innovation is the widespread implementation of the flintlock musket. That flintlock. In the late 17th, 18th centuries, um, Nadir Shah used them in the 18th century when he was invading Central Asia, uh, and um, I mean they were in, in, in use in the Ottoman arena much earlier. But here, by the time we get into the, the late 17th and 18th centuries, the flintlock musket is is universally available, and it gives those armies that have that technology a pretty substantial advantage, even over fast-moving cavalry. And so it's at that point in time when um, the the Central Asian state is trying actually to innovate, trying to uh, embrace the military revolution, but they're finding extraordinary resistance from the Uzbek tribes, who are the very foundational force that gives them legitimacy. And so there's a, a growing friction in, around this this the implementation of this military technology. The Uzbeks didn't want it. They didn't want, they, they didn't want to give up their advantage. The state then started to enlist non-Uzbek groups uh, into their military, and try, they tried to force the Uzbeks to submit, which, again, sends the, the decentralization process just that much farther. So ultimately, as I said, all of these factors, and, and I'm, I'm sure more as well, um, these are the ones that I that I focus my attention on, all of these factors, they braid together, they converge. Uh, it's a confluence of these in the 18th century that really um, led that crisis to become uh, uh, so critical that ultimately the Bahar and Khanate was um, uh, unable to emerge out of the crisis, and it simply collapsed.
1: And so... Um, now that we've kind of looked, you know, I, I think we've kind of done a good job at structure, kind of echoing the structure that you have in your book, where you spend the first couple of chapters talking about these kind of big themes that we discussed at the beginning of the interview. And then, you know, in that final chapter before your conclusion, you actually uh, dive into the evidence and talk about um, these different kind of different interrelated factors that led that that. Kind of fueled the Bukharan crisis that we've, we've discussed, including climate changes in technology, um, commercial relations, the global silver trade. Um, and so, I, want, I think it's a good time to come back towards the end of our interview here and think about what are these big takeaways that, that you really want to um, emphasize uh, with your book, um, whether it be for scholars or um, passive observers of, of Silk Road uh, histories. Um, or just casual observers of of Central Asia?
0: so i think um I think a few things. Um, I think one is I mean the great value I, one thing i want I want scholars to uh, readers to to take from this is the great value of embracing the complexities of history. Um, this is something I really love to bring into the classroom. Uh it's part of the real importance of teaching our students to think historically. And when I when I say think historically, I don't just mean appreciating that all things have a past. Uh I mean, of course, that's important too, but I, I mean uh also appreciating how multiple historical processes converge to create change over time. Some of these processes are interrelated, some are independent, some unfold quickly, others gradually. All are shaped by their own distinctive contexts in terms of culture, tradition, contingency. But being able to understand that level of complexity, um, to me, that is the real beauty of history. Uh, And Nick, if I can put my department chair's hat on for just a moment, um, uh, let me say I think mastering that mode of thinking is also why history majors succeed in so many different career paths. I think also that it makes Central Asian history I – mean, it, it, I want to illustrate for, for, for the reader. Central Asian history is really exciting. It's relevant. It deserves to be taken seriously. Uh, and especially for colleagues working in, in, in um, related fields, Chinese history, Russian history, for example, uh, I think it's a requirement that they take it seriously. Um, there is an awful lot happening in, in Central Asia. I mean, it's an enormous territory with some fascinating historical questions that are yet to be yet to be engaged in, in, in deep and meaningful ways. Uh, and so I hope that that also comes out of the book and that it, it it really entices other people to engage with Central Asian history and, uh, and, and do so in real meaningful, serious ways.
1: Great. I think that's like a, a perfect comment to end on. Um, but I before we go, <laughs> <laughs> or we can continue for uh, two more, um, we'll save that for next time. Um, but I think, um, before we go, uh, typically as is custom, I like to ask, um, Are you working on any uh, future projects right now? Do you have anything uh, in mind um, that you'd like to share with us?
0: So the Oxford Research Encyclopedia for Asian Commercial History that I've mentioned now a couple of times, you know, so that is actually a a subset. It's under the umbrella of the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Asian History that um, uh, is a, a, a larger uh, project more expansive for all of Asia. So uh, this is, you know, the part that I'm working on is really focused on Asian commercial history. That's something I'm really excited about. Um, I'm working with a group of regional editors and we are putting together an array of about 120 different essays analyzing so many different facets, different aspects of Asian commercial history. And I really hope that that when it's, when it's done in a couple of years, that, that, uh, it represents a counterbalance to what I see as a, you know a, a very eurocentric bias in the field of economic history so something that will really enable um, scholars working in many different areas of Asian history to who are interested in engaging questions of commercial history and folding that into their work in meaningful ways I hope that that's there to, to help them do so um, other work on Central Asia I've got a lot. Um, one, I, I would really love to dig more deeply into the um, uh, early modern environmental history question. I think that's a great field and there's so much interesting stuff to do. Uh, And, you know, in, in the more modern period, there's some really good stuff that's been coming out. Um, Maya Peterson, Sarah Cameron have done some really great stuff. Uh, My colleague, Nick Breifogel is putting together a series of edited volumes uh, that's going to be bringing out some, uh, some some really interesting work by Beatrice Panati and some other colleagues as well. Uh, So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm excited to, to continue working in that area. and then, you know, so I've done the Buharan crisis and I've done the Khanid of Hulkan, but there's still the Buharan Emirate and uh, uh, the Hivan Khanid as well. And so, you know, maybe I'll turn my attention that, that toward, toward, toward those states one of these days, or maybe something else will come up first.
1: Great. And um, we have plenty to look forward to. That's what it sounds like. And um, I hope that uh, when you publish these volumes, you'll consider coming back on the show. Um, so, Scott, I wanted to thank you again for your time today. And uh, for our readers, um, if you're interested in learning more about the Bukharan Crisis and how Central Asian history uh, remained connected uh, in the 18th century, you can check out the Bukharan Crisis, a connected history of 18th century Central Asia, uh, published by University of Pittsburgh Press in 2020. Uh, thanks again, Scott. Thank you, Nick.